Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where each week we tell you about strange things that have happened in history. I'm your host for this week, Barnaby King, and joining me as ever is my co-host, Amelia Edwards. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm alright, thank you, how are you? Yeah, I'm well, but... I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, there's a there's a smattering of kerfuffling going on in Ukraine. In Ukraine, you say? I know, I know. It's it's not really been covered by the news, but uh, no, I haven't heard anything. No, there, there's 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 a bit of a brouhaha going on <laughs> over there. A brouhaha, indeed. Yes, I heard it was more of a rumpus. <laughs> so yes, obviously, basically the day after our last podcast went out. War were declared. Wahoo. When, I mean, I think it's pretty fair to say an aggressor, Russia, invaded a sovereign nation. Yeah. I, I, I think that's the summary I, from the international community. I think that's pretty fair. Yeah. And you'd think that that would be an easy concept to grasp. But some people don't seem to have done so. How do you mean? There are a number of people who are blaming many things for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, this includes the New World Order. Really? Yeah, that's We've new- already talked about the New World Order. I know, I know. <laughs> if anyone listening thinks that this is all about the New World Order, go back and listen to our podcast episode about the Illuminati. Yeah. Because your New World Order was made up by some Playboy writers. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> the Illuminati was a lot sexier than you thought. <laughs> really wasn't <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> no it was it was really just a book club i know it was so boring it was so boring <laughs> but anyway so people there are some people who are blaming the whole situation on it seems like everything but vladimir putin okay sure i mean my favorite one was the one where people have blamed it on biden oh yes and also on obama yep and also on Bill Clinton. Oh, I haven't heard that one. No, you you have to blame it on the three previous Democratic right, incumbents because there's nothing the Democrats love more than Vladimir Putin. I know, right? This <laughs> <laughs> is so it, it's so unusual, particularly in America, where you know historically U.S. and Russia not really got on very well. I wouldn't have said so. No, not on the whole. So you'd think that all the like, oh my God, we're super patriot side would be like, yeah, we're against Putin. But they've generally been like, well, he's got a point. He doesn't, he's not woke. Mm. So yeah, but... I think they just all want to be muscly, bare-chested men riding horses. (laughs) So they all want to be in some sort of gay music video (laughs) (laughs) well like Putin yes yeah anyway um so the unflushable turd Nigel Farage has poked his head above the toilet again oh my goodness that's gross (laughs) oh I don't like that imagery well I don't like Nigel f***ing Farage okay (laughs) but he poked his head above the parapet and gave his hot take on the situation he blamed uh, two organisations for Putin's invasion. Can you guess what they were? I'll give you a hint. Neither of them were Putin or Russia. I'll let you know one of them. Okay. One of them was NATO. And the other, who does Nigel Farage hate? The EU? Yes, Yay! absolutely. <laughs> so when he gave this hot take on the situation... um. A a tag was trending on Twitter, and that tag was Lord Haw Haw. Okay. Now, I mean, that's a slightly rude way to talk about Nigel Farage. Sure. I'm. There's actually a surprising amount of crossover. So I knew a bit about Lord Haw Haw. I oh, think. Oh, I, I was making a joke about what Haw Haw sounds like. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I did not get that. <laughs> no, but you you know. Like vaguely who Lord Haw Haw is, right? I guess I've heard. I know. I feel like he was a radio personality he was. during World War Two. He was, but yes. I can't remember what side he was on or what was going on. <laughs> well, he it was being trended basically because people were drawing comparisons between Nigel Farage and Lord Haw Haw because Lord Haw Haw was a British citizen, right? Sort of. We'll okay. get to that right <laughs> near the end. Okay, who 
went over to Germany and broadcast mm. propaganda for the Nazis. Oh, do you know there was an American woman who did exactly the same thing? There were a few people who did similar sorts of things. Mm. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert, but when the Nazis fell, they didn't come off well. Oh, I wouldn't imagine so, no. Yeah. So I kind of got to thinking about this because Lord Hawhaw is one of those people who I'd, I'd heard a bit about. I knew basically as much as you did just then. Cool. But I decided to look into his life further, and there's some really interesting stuff, some of which, some of which, and I, this is fantastic, involves uh, West Sussex, where we came from originally, and specifically Worthing. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Not Worthing. I know, right? <laughs> uh, for those who don't know, Worthing is... Um, how do we put this politely? Okay, so Worthing used to be a fashionable seaside resort mm. back in like the 20s or 30s. Yeah. And ever since then, it's gone downhill. Yeah, pretty much. It's It might have picked up a bit. I, I recently I, saw that some of my friends have been to a rather nice looking nightclub in Worthing. Oh, right. Um, but when we were there in sort of the 2010s, yeah, it was... Before that, the, yeah. Like, yeah. The noughties, the late noughties. 90s. Um, it was a lot of old people mm. and... A lot of drug addicts yep. and a lot of just unpleasant behaviour. Yeah. So Worthing has a surprisingly prominent feature in the story of uh, William Joyce, a.k.a. Lord Hawhaw. Fab. William Joyce is a nice name. It is. It's a good name. Um, it, it sounds like he should be a writer. It does sound like he should be a writer. I think that's just because I'm thinking of James, James Joyce. Joyce. Yeah, yep. exactly. Um, but notably, William Joyce, a.k.a. Lord Hawhaw, was the penultimate man to be hanged in England for a crime that was not murder. What? Yes. I mean, that sounds like it's a really big deal, but when you stick in the word penultimate there, it's like... Eh, it's okay. because another man was hanged the next day, oh. but that was for treachery, which is a lesser crime. He was hanged for high treason, and he was the last man to be hanged for high treason. Wow, okay. Yeah. In fact, about a couple of decades after this, the crime of high treason was just abolished. We just yeah. have regular treason now. <laughs> Can you still be hanged for regular treason? I think, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's one of those things where technically the law says you can, mm. but the law also says that we don't do the death penalty. Yeah. So... Tricky one. Yeah. Oh, England. Absolutely. So we'll go back and we'll talk about William Joyce from his birth. Well, we've already got spoilers, though. Oh, yeah, but who cares? Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> Uh, William Joyce was born on April 26th, 1906, on Herkimer Street in Brooklyn, New York. What? Yeah. Okay. His father, Michael Francis Joyce, was a naturalised US citizen who had moved from Ireland, having obtained citizenship to the US in 1894. Okay. Uh, Michael's family had been farmers, but he had moved into the construction industry. Mm. And he moved to America at pretty much the perfect time, because there was a great boom in building and in the railways. Okay. So he made a fair amount of money doing this. But... While he was a US citizen, as well as an Irish citizen, he wanted to go back home every now and then. Okay. And whilst visiting Ireland one day, uh, Michael met Gertrude Emily Brooke, later Joyce. Okay. Who was an Anglo-Irish woman from a fairly wealthy family of doctors and medical mm -hmm. professionals, who themselves were visiting Ireland, having now lived in England. Oh, okay. Also, Gertrude is such a name of its time, isn't it? I know, it? it is. It's amazing. Like... When, when, spoiler, she marries him, uh, she becomes Gertrude Joyce, which okay. is just, that That's is, it's the peak. most early 20th century. <laughs> I also like, spoiler, she marries him. <laughs> he met her and they had a nice conversation about dolphins. Well, and then, and then we move on to the rest of the story. I mean, kind of, like their courtship was not one that you would say is romantic. Okay. Um, basically they met, chatted a bit, and then later, when they'd gone back to their respective homes, he sent her a letter in which he proposed. Nice, okay. <laughs> I mean, you do get these things from those days where True. you put, like, your little advert for a wife yeah. in, in the newspaper. <laughs> I mean, this was, this was a specific wife he was after. He yeah. wasn't just after any wife. That's nice. And this actually caused a bit of controversy in, uh, particularly in Gertrude's family. Is it because he's Irish-Irish, not Anglo-Irish? Well, he was Catholic um, and she was from a Protestant family. Uh, 
Despite this, though, they do seem to have both been unionists. Okay. Her family were more unionists because, you know, Protestant, Mm Anglo-Irish. But despite being a staunch Catholic, it seems that Michael himself was also a unionist. Huh. We don't know the precise extent of it, but he definitely seemed to enjoy the luxuries of, you know, being a unionist at the time. Sure, Uh, okay. He bought houses and rented them out to the Royal Irish Constabulary. Oh. who are different from the Royal Ulster Constabulary, who, which I kept getting confused between the two. But the Royal Irish Constabulary were essentially a combination police and military force that the British government sent in to, you know, aggressively keep the peace Amazing. in Ireland okay. at the time. So, so he's kind of benefiting a great deal then from Absolutely. the union. So, cool, cool. All right. I, I I think it's fair to say that, yeah, he's, he's Catholic, a but he is a unionist. It, okay. It's definitely the best for him. So they married and moved over to America. And in 1906, uh, Gertrude gave birth to William. Mm-hmm. William didn't stay long in America. After a few years, the family decided to move back to Galway. Okay. I don't know why. It seems very unclear. But for whatever reason, they wanted him to grow up Irish. Sure. Okay, fine. So they went back to Ireland and uh, William Joyce attended a Jesuit school between 1915 and 1921. Okay. Now, See, that shows us that he's part of the Illuminati. And that brings (laughs) us right back to the beginning. The Ukraine is part of the... Okay, yeah, fine. Stop it. Um, But this is kind of interesting because... Uh, Gertrude's family were really heavily Protestant. It seems Gertrude was really Protestant. Okay. But I, it, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of, you know, tension from the fact that William was sent to a Jesuit school, a very Catholic school. Yeah. So I don't know. It, 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 William Joyce's parents seem a bit odd to me. Sure. Um, I, I don't fully understand them. And frankly, history doesn't really tell us that much more about them. Okay. Uh, however, we do know a lot about William Joyce. His life is pretty well documented. Uh, while he was still at school, the Irish War for Independence broke out. And this oh, was, shit. Okay. Yeah, this was a war that lasted from 1919 to 1921. And okay. it was kind of the precursor to Ireland becoming independent from Britain. Oh, wait, I do know about this war because yeah. I read a book about it. Excellent. <laughs> okay. But yeah, it's it, it didn't end in the, you know, creation of Ireland. That wasn't until, I believe, 1937. Okay. Um, but this was one of the sort of major precursors to it. Sure. So when the war broke out, William Joyce was uh, about the age of 16, maybe 17. Okay. And he was actually recruited by a British army captain to act as a courier for the British army. Oh my God, Because there was fighting in Galway between the British army and the IRA. Okay. So he decided, I don't know why, but he decided this young lad, he looks, you know, kind of thin. So he'll be the perfect runner or something. I don't know. (laughs) I mean... William Joyce has never been described as, you know, particularly athletic or anything like that. So I don't know why this captain decided he was the perfect courier. Maybe he was literally the only unionist around. It could very well be. <laughs> this kid, he's he's kind of Protestant. Let's throw a letter at him. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but William Joyce really took to this and he became good friends with a number of the Black and Tans. Okay. Um, so the Black and Tans, for those who don't know, were essentially part of the... I mean, they weren't paramilitary. They were definitely part of the military. Okay. But they were a kind of subsection of it. Uh, they were called Black and Tans because of the outfits they wore, and they were known for horrendous acts of brutality against the Irish people. Hence the song. Uh, yes, absolutely. And whenever I hear the term black and tans, I think of that song and that Alan Partridge Of course, sketch, yeah. <laughs> which is fantastic. Um, it's also suspected that because of his friendship with these black and tans, that William Joyce may have been involved in the kidnap and murder of Michael Griffin, a Republican priest whose body was found in a bog. Oh my God. Yeah. So... Whether it was to cover up his role in the murder or just because the situation was getting a bit tasty in Galway. Sure. uh, Captain Keating, the captain who recruited William Joyce, 
sent him to join the Worcester Regiment stationed in England. Okay. This was actually a really fortuitous thing because about two days after Joyce was sent to England, an IRA operative turned up to his house to murder him. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So for William Joyce... Good timing. How do they know that they t- that this guy turned up at his house to murder him? Like, did he knock on the door and say, "Excuse me, is um is I, William Joyce in?" I don't know, but it is well established that this is the case. I don't know how. I didn't find out. I I just need to murder him really, really I, quickly. A little bit, yeah. It's like, nope, I'm his father. Oh, oh, you're that, Mister Joyce. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> no, I can't murder you. Yeah. Unfortunately for William Joyce, the Worcester Regiment were not as lax as Captain Keating about, you know, making sure everything was done properly. Okay. And they discharged Joyce when they found out he was underage. Oh, shit, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Remember, he was recruited as a 16, maybe 17-year-old. Okay, sure. They didn't, they weren't worried about the, um, the bog priest, though. Well, I think that if he was involved, I don't think they knew about it. Okay. Like, I suspect that if it was the case that he was involved in the murder of this priest, that this was done to kind of cover this up. And sure, okay. Captain Keating didn't want, you know, anyone to find out. Right. Particularly because, you know, he'd recruited this boy. <laughs> yeah, but then all the way around Worcestershire, priests start to go missing. <laughs> Turning up in bogs. Turning up in bogs. Yeah. It's all very midsummer murders. It is very much so. So despite the fact that he was kicked out of the army, uh, he stayed in England and his family actually joined him a couple of years later. They didn't, sure, they fine. apparently were not in any hurry to follow their son. <laughs> they were like, okay, so we've got this 16 year old. He's just jamming about in England for a bit. Should yeah. we go find him? Make sure he's okay? There's I mean, important I think growth for a points while, in his lifestyle. I think he lived with uh, some of his mother's family. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, but he ended up, continuing to stay on in England and he went to London to go to university and he actually did really well there he uh, got a first class honours in his English degree nice and also during this time furthered his exposure to extreme right wing political views (laughs) okay in 1923 he joined the British Fascisti oh my god a group of fascists from the extreme right wing of the Conservative Party Right. He campaigned for the Conservative Party and was extremely aggressive towards any anti-fascists. Also, he had a certain a certain group of people that he didn't like. Didn't like at all. Can you imagine who that might be? Was it the Ukrainians? No. <laughs> that was a framing device. Forget the Ukrainians for now. God's sake. <laughs> Just just throw me a bone with this. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay, was it the Jews? It was the Jews. Oh, yes. okay then. <laughs> Absolutely. And Why can't people be more interesting in their hate groups? I mean, you join the British fascisti and you're like, you know who I don't like? Jewish people. And it's yeah. like, well, we knew you didn't like Jewish people. Why can't you be more interesting? Yeah, it's also like the reasons he give are the exact same reasons that always get trotted out that you know that they're secretly in control and they're they're corrupting all the governments and everything like that. Yeah, and... well, he would say that because he was part of the Illuminati. He hasn't been trained <laughs> by the Jesuits. We know this already. <laughs> Wait, what? Okay. So, uh, no, uh, no, stop, stop. We're moving on. No. <laughs> yes, we are. God damn it. This is my episode. I'm taking back control, just like we did with Brexit. <laughs> Fine. Okay. Okay. In 1924, he got into a fight that resulted in him being cut from his earlobe to the corner of his mouth, and it left a deep scar. Like, this is not a light thing like that. It, like, the so it's skin... not like a dueling scar? No, it was like a Joker scar. Oh, damn. Yeah. Sounds pretty cool, though. I mean, kind of. It sounds like if I want to have a Nazi villain in something, that's oh, yes. exactly what I want absolutely. to look like. This absolutely, yeah, you would cast him in that role in a film. Yeah, cool. Uh, it was said that he had been attacked by communists. Well, it would be said that he'd been attacked by communists. God, these Nazis are basic. But Joyce went further. He said not only was it a communist who attacked him, it was a Jewish communist. (laughs) Oh, my God. 
I mean, he was anti-Semitic from an early age. Couldn't it at least have been like a Jewish traveler communist? Like, (laughs) shake it up a bit, why not? (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, uh, his first wife, uh, whom he would actually marry three years after this, Mm. uh, she later said, I think in 1992, in an interview, that it was actually just an Irish woman who attacked him and her reasons were unknown or unclear. Cool. I mean, that makes sense. That makes way more sense than it was a Jewish communist. How do you know? Had you had a discussion about this person's faiths and beliefs before the fight? He probably did some bullshit about head measuring and nose size or something. (laughs) He had those little round glasses on. That's how you can tell. Absolutely. Yes. It was a Hasidic Jew. He had the hat and the, the curly hair. I was thinking it looked exactly like Trotsky so obviously <laughs> Trotsky but Hasidic Jew hot Trotsky Hotsky Hotsky, Hotsky is just a sexy Trotsky which is just Trotsky so okay it's also possible it's not completely proven but there are there's pretty strong evidence that in 1925 William Joyce was actually recruited as an agent for MI5 I mean, sure, why not? I mean, we were awful in those days. Yeah, basically it was his job to spy on left-wing and communist organisations. Makes sense, we were very scared of the communists. We were indeed, when really there was another group that we should have been way more worried about. But the Russians! I know, right? Well, actually, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the Russians. Yes, the Russians. Anyway... Uh, There is some evidence for this. It's not conclusive. I think it's generally accepted that it's true. Um, But I I wouldn't certainly say I'm 100% sure that, you know, he was an MI5 operative in any way. Mm. But anyway, he may well have done this job. He may well have not. But in 1927, he married his first wife, Hazel. Okay. And went on to have at least two daughters with her. I found a number of places that said they had three. Okay. It's difficult to tell because... His children, it seems like they didn't really want to acknowledge their father because, you know, hanged for high treason. Yeah, that's fair enough. Okay. Only only one of his daughters has made her identity publicly known. Mm. Um, and she actually, it's kind of interesting. She In interviews and that, it seems like she loved her father, but she recognizes that he was a truly awful person. Oh, good for her. That's yeah. going to be a very difficult thing to hold I in know, your head. I know, right? Yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, he would later go on to separate from his first wife on the eve of the Second World War. Great. But for a time being, married life seemed to calm him down a little bit. He didn't really do very much. He joined the Conservative Party. He had failed in his dream job of getting into the Foreign Office. Oh. So instead he became a teacher. <laughs> well, you know what they say. Those who can't do, teach. Those who can't join the Foreign Office. <laughs> but by 1933, he had a new passion because an individual came on the scene. Ooh. One Oswald Mosley. Who created his British Union of Fascists, otherwise Great. known as the BUF. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. Joyce. Buff. Yeah, I know, buff. It's amazing. And now Joyce had a new organisation to call home. Yay. Uh, He quickly impressed Mosley with his eloquence and his fierce, fierce opinions. Mm. Uh, Of his speaking, one journalist wrote that he was thin, pale, intense. He had not been speaking many minutes before we were electrified by this man. So terrifying in its dynamic force, so vituperative, so vitriolic. Wow. Yeah. Also, what is it about fascists and being kind of skinny? I know, right? Skinny and a little bit short. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Putin's 5'7". Is he? Yeah. Wow. I know, right? I mean, he's not skinny. He is a henchman. I mean, yes. But I think we've got a couple of friends who are a bit short. I think we should keep an eye on them in case they go a bit fash. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just imagining some of our very gay friends turning fascists. Oh, but can you imagine the soldiers' uniforms? I mean, Hugo Boss designed the Nazi uniforms. That's true, and yeah. They were pretty nice uniforms, aside from the whole fascist element. Yeah, and the skulls. Mm. But they are stylish. <laughs> yes. So by 1934, so only a year later, uh, William Joyce had risen in the ranks of the BUF and had become its director of propaganda... Well, that doesn't surprise me. I know, right? And later, <laughs> what a Goebbels. 
<laughs> he was actually quite heavily involved with Goebbels later on. Uh, <laughs> He also became its deputy leader. Okay. And it was his influence that pushed the main agenda of the BUF away from its kind of early origins, which Mm -hmm. were mostly economic policies, to aggressive anti-Semitism. Oh, good. Uh, Joyce was largely based around West Sussex. Yay! And his influence caused the county of West Sussex to be described as a hotbed of fascism. And Worthing, which was the main hub of the BUF in the area, Mm. was described as the Munich of the South. Oh my God. Yeah, I know, right? It, To be honest, it kind of goes some way to explain why that area of Britain is surprisingly conservative, even to this day. I mean, it has always been surprisingly conservative. I think... The the village that was between our two villages used to be a rotten borough back in the day. Ah. Um, and it's always, always been conservative. I think they've never actually voted Labour or Liberal. Mm. I think yeah. that's, they've literally always, since like Napoleon's day. Well, keep an eye on them because we now know as well they've got a tendency to go fash. <laughs> keep an eye on any short men. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? In West Sussex. <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, It was also under Joyce's influence that the BUF's official name changed to the British Union of Fascists and National Socialists. Oh, my God. And what does National Socialist mean, kids? Nazis! Nazis! Yay! But you see, that shows that they aren't... Like, that they are communists, right? Oh, absolutely, Because it's got socialist in the name. Yeah, forget the fact that he like Joyce was hugely against communists. Mm-hmm. The fact that the t- the name was so- National Socialists means that he was definitely left wing. Yeah, a hundred percent. Anyway, uh, the ranks of the BUF had swelled considerably, um, largely from disaffected conservatives. Okay. Um, but they were not without aggressive opposition. There were still anti-fascists around. Yay! On more than one occasion, protesters attempted and in some cases succeeded in frustrating the efforts of the BUF in their rallies and their speeches. One such incident in Worthing became known as the Battle of Warwick Street. <laughs> oh my God, which one's Warwick Street? I think I know. It's the main... St- oh, no, no. It's, uh, uh, that might be Montgomery Street. I don't remember. Anyway. Okay, but yeah. Okay, that sounds great. But yeah, it just... <laughs> it's I, near the body shop somewhere. Uh, yeah, you know? probably. <laughs> So on October 9th, 1934, Mosley and Joyce were both giving speeches at the Pier Pavilion in Worthing. Okay. And they were heckled and jeered at by protesters who'd broken into the speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joyce actually made note of them in his speech by saying, We were assaulted by the vilest mob you ever saw in the streets of London. Little East End Jews straight from Poland. Are you really going to blame us for throwing them out? Wait, is this happening in London, sorry? No, it's happening in Worthing. <laughs> I, he's saying that... Oh, uh, right. It's the whole, like, oh, London is bad and full of yeah, liberal elites. Exactly. Right, right, right. Very much so. Also, isn't that just such an English fascist thing to have your fascist um, speech in a peer pavilion? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's simultaneously horrifying and kind of cute. Yeah, it's just a little bit naff. It is, isn't it? Especially because I'm imagining it of like the the sort of the peers of today where it's like full of penny arcade machines. No, I am imagining the arcade machine music going on behind them (laughs) while they're trying to be like full on Hitler speech and everyone's just like, get on. Yeah. (laughs) Then seagulls attack them and steal their chips. (laughs) But this definitely, like this was riling people up. By the time the speeches had finished, it's estimated that 2,000 people were outside the pavilion. Oh my God. Uh, Some were there to protest and mock the black shirts as the BUF were known. Mm -hmm. Uh, Others simply wanted to have a look because Mosley and Joyce were both really notorious figures. So, Mm. you know. And Worthing's really boring. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) Which is why it's amazing that this happened there. But whatever happened, the black shirts clearly thought that the mob before them was going to attack. Okay. And the black shirts, many of them were recruited from like boxing halls. Oh, These God. were like big men. Right. So they're the big men who have got a lot of muscle, but yep. don't necessarily have any way of gaining like gainful employment from it. Yeah. And they're disaffected and angry. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. So they started getting a bit aggressive, sort of like getting into fighting poses. Mm-hmm. 
and threats were launched from all sides and fighting broke out. Now you might be wondering, where are the police in all this? Surely they should get involved. And they did. But if you remember that there were 2,000 people outside uh, protesting against the black shirts, yeah. there were 19 police officers oh, available Hans. at the time. That's very understandable. Worthing is not big. No, it is not. <laughs> so, of course, they were unable to stop the fighting, so the black shirts were forced to retreat inside the pavilion. Oh, my God. Uh, the protesters didn't follow them in, but did jeer at them. Uh, some people shouting things like, poor old Mosley's got the wind up him. Oh, nice. <laughs> I don't know why. I think I blame Jeeves and Worcester for this, but I always kind of see British fascists of the 1930s as like semi-harmless. And I think it's because of like, I know they weren't. Yeah. I think in my head, they are all from Jeeves and Worcester, yeah. the, the TV series. Yeah, where their main guy secretly runs a ladies lingerie shop. Yeah, and where yeah. they're like, they're constantly making speeches and stuff, but they never actually do anything. Yeah. I mean... The thing is that the real British Union of Fascists, while they did give a lot of speeches, they were also aggressive. Oh, yeah. And they, and they were definitely way more of a threat than I give them credit for. Yeah, they just didn't have as much success as the National Socialists in Germany. Yeah, but they, they were poised in some cases for some electoral victory. I mean, one of the reasons that Worthing was the hub of fascism is because it was the first place to elect a fascist councillor. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know, right? I didn't know that. I know, it's mad. The weird thing is, it it kind of looking at this, where you've got this extremist group that's from a branch of disaffected conservatives who are basically like, this conservative party's not going far enough. Mm. Doesn't it neatly marry up with what UKIP did? A little bit, yeah. A little bit. Just a little bit. Again with Farage, the turd. Um, <laughs> so... Eventually, these 19 police officers, and I don't know how they managed to do it, but they created enough of a blockade to allow passage for the fascists to leave the pavilion peaceably. Okay. And the fascists tried to be very dignified. You know, it's it's very fascistic to be, like, unemotional. We're just going to do our thing. Don't care what happens around us. But they were pelted with stones and rotten, rotten food. Nice. They tried to ignore it and go to a cafe in the arcade. Um, Again, which... stop being kind of cute. <laughs> it's not like a beer hall, is it? <laughs> well, they, they actually move on to a pub later. But... Okay. So uh, just for those who don't know, an arcade is not, in this case, not a video games no. arcade. <laughs> this is a shopping arcade, basically like a covered area yeah. with a load of shops. It's like a little shopping center that was built in the 20s. Yeah. With like yeah. stained glass. Yeah. So they went into the arcade and they went into this cafe, but they were followed by the mob. Good. And they were also followed by some young people who, I don't know if they really knew what they were doing or they just decided to join in, but they decided to shoot at the fascists with pea shooters and air rifles. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Um, they tried to have their coffee or whatever, their tea probably, mm-hmm. you know, being nice and British. Yep. And then the windows of the cafe were smashed. Oh my God. Yep. So I feel sorry for the cafe owners. I know, I do too. So the fascists are like, right, okay, we're leaving. Mm-hmm. We're going to just stand around outside. So they go outside and one of the other youths climbs onto the roof of the arcade and pushes off some masonry. Oh my God. Apparently it almost hit Oswald Mosley. So they're like, this situation is bad. Yeah. We are severely outnumbered. We're going to go back to our headquarters, which was a fascist friendly pub. Okay. But the mob prevented them. <laughs> <laughs> and fighting broke out and did not stop until 11pm. Wow. At which point they managed to get enough police around to actually, you know, round people up and stop the fighting. Mm. So that was the Battle of Warwick Street. I love it. Which is kind of mad. <laughs> I mean, it, I think I love it's... that it's just follow the follow fascists around and throw stuff at them until they go away. Yeah. If only they had milkshakes in those days. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good year. It was. But William Joyce was undaunted by the opposition and he was going to Nazi it up as much as he wanted to. Yeah. Uh, he sp- as was his right. Yes. He spoke out against the government uh, of India bill in 1935, mm-hmm. which would see some power returning to the native Indian government. Yeah, can't allow that. Yeah. He was particularly caustic about this, stating of those that backed the bill that they were feeble and one loathsome, fetid, purulent, tumid mass of hypocrisy hiding behind Jewish dictators because you've got to get that anti-semitism oh, yeah, yeah. in there like 
I can understand now why his his rhetoric might have been electrifying, if only because that sounds like that was very hard to say. It was hard to say. <laughs> I'm probably going to cut out the bit where I f***ed it up. <laughs> I mean, fair, but it just sounds very hard to say. So if he had the ability to say that with clarity, yeah, like, okay, fine. And in a pretty affected upper-class accent, which yes. is what he generally did. Great. Um, now, one of the reasons that he was particularly angry about this is that he seemed that he had a secret desire that should a should Britain elect a fascist government, he really wanted to be Viceroy of India. <laughs> <laughs> so he was I like, don't, don't give them he's... back power. I want to rule them. He hasn't got the constitution for it. No, not really. He's a pale and sickly man. <laughs> He's going to get malaria the moment he steps out of Britain. Yeah, basically. <laughs> he's going to hit Calais. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but once again, his desires, in this case to become Viceroy of India, <laughs> would be thwarted as by 1937, the relationship between Joyce and Mosley had become strained. Oh, no. Mosley did not like Joyce's popularity and wasn't too keen on the aggressive anti-Semitism. He felt it was... Like, he felt, you know, they could be a bit anti-Semitic, sure, but it was sure. drawing attention away from the important economic points that Oswald <laughs> Mosley wanted to make. I mean, okay, I can get behind this because, obviously, the Nazis in, in Germany were anti-Semitic, mm-hmm. um, but they got ahead because of their economic points. Yeah. Which is really what everyone wanted, was just for people to say, okay, we're going to look after the country and stop the communists. Yeah. It kind of feels like if Joyce hadn't got involved with the BUF, they might have gotten further, which is worrying. So in a weird way, we should be thankful. Yeah, it's a good thing that Joyce was an utter raving lunatic. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like... Uh, Mosley would later go on to say that Joyce was a traitor to his country. We are definitely not letting Oswald Mosley off the hook lightly. He was also a shit. Oh, yes. Um, But he did expel Joyce from the party. Okay. So in the intervening years before World War II, uh, Joyce and his first wife, Hazel, separated, as I said. Mm -hmm. She actually went on to marry Oswald Mosley's personal bodyguard. Oh, my God. I know, right? Isn't that such, like, a film thing to happen? It's like, it's so bodyguard. Yeah. It's like, and I, but with Nazis. Yeah. Uh, Joyce went on and married his second wife, Margaret, with whom he would remain married for the rest of his life. Okay. He also decided if he couldn't be part of the British Union of Fascists, he would start up his own group with Blackjack <laughs> and Hookers. No. Uh, he started up the National Socialist League. Okay. Which was somewhat in opposition to the BUF, who had turned away from the rampant anti-Semitism that Joyce had done. Yeah. And instead was kind of just protesting the prospect of a war with Germany. Okay. Basically like, Germany's good, don't attack them. Right. And he's like, Germany's good, don't attack them, do attack all of the Jewish people who run everything. Yeah, basically. Uh, By August 1939, Joyce received a tip-off that he was about to be arrested. Right. Basically because of all the assaulting that he's been doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He he never gives up being, you know, aggressive and trying to beat people up. Okay. That's like that's like super early days Hitler fanfic, though, isn't it? I on mean, his part? Kind of. I mean, at this point, we're on the eve of war. Yeah. <laughs> we're about- no, this is what I mean, though. Like, I think he's behind the times. Oh like, yes, I he's see. He's like a Hitler fanboy from the thir- from the early thirties. Right, I see. And he hasn't got with the got with the zeitgeist. <laughs> Well, I mean, clearly he wants to be part of that zeitgeist because he flees the country and goes to Germany. Okay, makes sense. Like, World War II era Germany was his kind of place. Yeah. (laughs) And despite his love of the Nazi-run country, he actually struggled to find employment in Germany. (laughs) And it was... Yeah, it was only a chance meeting with a former Mosleyite. Okay. As they were apparently called. That's an awful name. I know, it's dreadful. Come on, historian. Yeah, but this Mosleyite friend... uh, had an in with the radio service. Okay, and he's willing to overlook his Mosleyite ways to help... Um... I think so. I think they kind of just ignored that little bit of it. Sure. Because, you know... I guess it's kind of like, ah, a fellow British person in yeah. these trying times. A fellow British fascist. Yes. Yeah. Hooray. 
So despite the fact that when he went for his interview, he apparently had a cold and had almost lost his voice, <laughs> he, would re- he was recruited straight away to help with Axe's propaganda. Okay. Now, I've mentioned already that he had the nickname Lord Haw-Haw. Yeah. And it is generally associated just with him, but it's actually not just his nickname. Okay. It was the nickname that was... It was rather a broad title reserved for those who are in charge of broadcasting Nazi propaganda to the British forces. Okay. Because that was the thing that happened quite a lot because Britain didn't actually make it illegal for these channels to broadcast on the radio in the UK. (laughs) Okay. And a lot of people listened to them for various different reasons. Uh, Some of them were kind of entertained by it. Yeah. Some of them were, you know, going a bit fash. Yeah. And West Sussex. Yeah. Short men in West Sussex. (laughs) And for some of them, it was just the fact that at the time, uh, British news was being really heavily censored. Okay. So it was kind of the only way to get more information about what was actually going on with the war. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it was kind of the idea that people would listen and be like, well, this is obviously propaganda, but there's there's some bits of it in there that are probably going to be true, so we'll listen. So they already had a Lord Haw Haw, uh, which was the nickname given to him by a Daily Mirror journalist. Amazing. uh, A man by the name of Wolf Mittler. Okay. Which is a good German name. Very nice. Um, But Joyce really quickly replaced him because he was British. Mm -hmm. He spoke perfect English. Mm -hmm. And he could speak with this affected upper class accent. Wonderful. Which also really helped with the fact that he was known as Lord Haw Haw. Yeah. He kind of created this character of Lord Haw Haw. He took the the epithet and turned it into, you know, his thing. Okay. So uh, for a while, uh, his identity wasn't actually known. He would only announce himself as Lord Haw Haw on the radio. Okay. And it was only a few years later that he revealed his name and said, Mm. this is William Joyce, also known as Lord Haw Haw. Okay. And with that, he signed his own death warrant. I mean, kind of, yeah. Yeah. But to be honest, people already knew that it was Uh, William Joyce because he gave loads of speeches. So everyone had heard his voice before. So it was like, he came on the radio and they were like, I know that person. Oh, it's that pillock. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. But history kind of goes with William Joyce as the main and defining Lord Haw Haw. Okay. The, The name, by the way, you may be wondering exactly where it comes from. And it worked really well with William Joyce because he did this sort of upper class thing. So it's like, he's Lord Haw Haw. Mm. Look over there sort of thing. Yeah. Um, But also it's just because the propagandists were just like thoroughly contemptuous of Britain. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, looking down their nose like a snooty lord. I mean, that makes sense because that's like the way that Nazis always did propaganda about Britain. Because on the whole, Nazis kind of liked Britain. Yeah. But they... They're so friendly to fascists. What can I say? <laughs> um, but, but it's like it's the reason why they really liked PG Woodhouse, who I've mentioned mm. before. And I think he went to live in Nazi Germany at one point. PG what, Woodhouse? Woodhouse, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, he worked with the fascists. Oh, wow. Um, but it's thought that the reason why the Nazis liked him was because they thought that. Things like Jeeves and Worcester are making fun, right. at, like aggressive satirical fun of oh, the British I upper classes, see. which is like their viewpoint as well. Yeah. And obviously Jeeves and Worcester isn't actually making satirical, like it's a it's a it's a fun. it's a loving pastiche. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Anyway. Um Joyce took to this really well. Like uh Goebbels, obviously head of propaganda for the Nazis, was like You've got experience with propaganda. Mm-hmm. You look exactly like me. Yeah. So you are perfect for <laughs> Except this. Except for that hideous Joker scar that I forgot about yeah. for a hot moment there. <laughs> the, the scar comes into play right at the end of his life. Amazing. And in it's a horrible way, but Good. we'll get to that Good. later. I rub my hands and I <laughs> So Joyce's principal show... Because he was involved in other forms of propaganda as well. As I say, Goebbels liked him, Mm. so he was involved in producing other things. But his main thing was a show called Germany Calling, Germany Calling. (laughs) Sometimes known as Germany Calling. Yeah. And sometimes known as Germany Calling, Germany Calling, Germany Calling. Are you serious? Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) I thought you were taking the piss. No, I'm not. (laughs) <laughs> you are so emphatic there you just hit the uh, microphone hit with your the nose microphone, yes. 
But no, this was... So he would start his shows with those words. Right, right. Okay. And we do have recordings, so I'm going to play you a little bit. Germany calling, Germany calling, Germany calling. One would describe as the height of cynicism. A message sent by the First Lord of the Admiralty to the captain of the British destroyer Cossack, congratulating him on his gallant rescue efforts. Only a person of Mr. Churchill's mentality could congratulate anybody, first on shooting unarmed men, and secondly, on flagrantly violating Norwegian neutrality. Okay, a bit dry. <laughs> a bit dry, yes, but that is just the introduction. Sure. <laughs> um, apparently he was fantastically entertaining to the point where it's recorded that his show had six million dedicated listeners in the UK and a further 18 million casual listeners. Oh my God, how many people were in England at the time? I, I don't know exactly, but it is a huge amount of the population listened to him. Yeah. And... Again, it's one of these things where I can draw parallels between him and modern day politicians because what most people said about him was that he was entertaining. Yeah. He was funny. Yeah. And then, you know, it made his extreme views seem not so extreme. Yeah. Like, we don't know exactly how much his propaganda affected people. Mm. And I, I suspect that there's a lot of unconscious stuff that just wouldn't have been recorded at the time because, you know, psychology wasn't where sure. it is today. But it is that thing where it's like, if someone is entertaining, then you're like, oh, it's just it's just good old Lord Haw-Haw. Yeah. I, this is the thing, because I didn't realise that Lord Haw-Haw was a Nazi propagandist. Mm. I guess sometimes people talk almost like you get references to him every now and then and like they talk almost with fondness perhaps of having listened to it on the radio yeah exactly which is mad it is mad um especially given that we were supposed to be so vehemently anti the nazis and anti-germany and all of that kind of thing yeah but he would he would spout his propaganda which generally involved basically saying People of Britain, your rulers are corrupt and controlled by Jews. You should rise up, get rid of them, and join with the Nazis. Right. Do we know if he was at all successful? We don't. This is what I mean earlier. Like We, we don't know the extent of the success of his propaganda, mm. but... I mean, it's not good either way. Like, it's, no. he, he couldn't, he wouldn't have had a positive impact. Let's yeah. say that. Like, <laughs> well, it, we weren't expecting him no, to have I know, a positive I know, impact. No, I know, but, but the yeah. thing is, like, we don't know exactly how bad it was, but it wasn't going to be good. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, he also, as I said, worked on other propaganda projects. Uh, he wrote literature, which was distributed to allied prisoners of war. Okay. Basically trying to break their spirit with fake news. Great, in yeah. In modern parlance. And he would produce other radio shows that would claim to be secret illegal broadcasts happening from within Britain. Okay. Because, you know, they weren't allowed to operate radio stations. They, they, like, their radio stations could be broadcast, but they couldn't operate radio stations. So the idea is that, you know, the Nazis are already in Britain. Oh, They've got I their see. illegal broadcast stations. Right. Yeah. Just basically meant to... Like, to freak people out exactly. a bit and be like, they're already here. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, he also gave lectures at universities on the state of fascism in England and was even awarded medals for his work by Hitler. Wow. Uh, not in person, though. He never actually met Hitler in person, but he did receive at least two medals. Wow. Okay. Also, just the fact that Hitler's there handing out medals. I like, know. Well, I know. Like, yeah. That's wild. <laughs> so... Really, there's not much more interesting to say about him during most of the war. Okay. Because he just kind of methodically continued with what he was doing. Okay. No exciting stories then. No, not particularly. Um, Like I said, at first he was just known as Lord Hawhor and then he revealed his identity. Mm. Um, He also would sometimes get his wife on the show. Oh my God. And she was Lady Hawhor. Okay, great. He had really taken to, you know, this epithet and made it a badge of honour. Yeah. Which, you know... Nigel Farage sometimes does a show with a big old sign with, like, not woke Farage above him. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, as I said, though, despite the fact that he revealed his identity later on, people already knew who it was. Oh, yeah. They'd heard him and they'd heard his wife. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. 
But his final broadcast was during the Battle of Berlin. Oh, my God. April 30th, 1945. Mm. We don't know if this was actually broadcast or just pre-recorded. Right. It seems unclear, and the Battle of Berlin was obviously a bit chaotic. Yeah. So... Very, very much so. Yeah. Uh, But we do have the recording, and on it, Joyce is audibly drunk rambles on about how evil the UK was, about Mm -hmm. how Germany never wanted to be an expansionist empire. Sure. About how evil the Soviets are and we should be worried about them instead of Nazis. I mean, maybe. (laughs) No, no. Get rid of the Nazis first. Oh, yeah. No, we'll get rid of the Nazis first. But then maybe we can be a bit worried about the Soviets. Yep. And he signed it off with a Heil Hitler and farewell. Amazing. So I'll play you a little bit of that just so you can hear him being a little bit drunk. Cool. <laughs> this is a concept that many of you may have failed to understand. Let me tell you that in Germany there still remains the spirit of unity and the spirit of strength. The spirit of what? Unity. unity. Okay. can actually hear the people rioting outside (laughs) (laughs) well he wasn't actually in berlin at the time okay um but yeah so that was his final broadcast and it goes on for about six or seven minutes cool um and then it rounds off with him you know piling hitler and saying farewell cool and then there was another episode of Germany Calling. Oh, right. Or Germany, Germany Calling, calling. <laughs> Germany Calling. Or Germany Calling, Germany Calling, Germany Calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was another episode of it because after the Battle of Berlin, a group of Allied soldiers took the broadcast tower <gasps> oh. and broadcast their own version where they basically just ripped the piss out of him. That's for half awesome. An hour. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But Joyce himself was not captured at the Battle of Berlin. I said he wasn't around for it. On the 28th of May, 1945, at Flensburg, which is a town near the Danish border, and it was the final capital of the Third Reich. Oh, God, okay. There was a Jewish-German man who had been born uh, Horst Pinschuer, but was at this point going by the name Jeffrey Perry. Okay. And he spotted a bedraggled man in the street. And he got to chatting with him, uh, and he was speaking in French and English. Mm-hmm. And when the man responded in English, he noticed that he recognised the voice. <laughs> okay. And he thought, this is William Joyce. This is Lord Haw Haw. So he just outright asked him, are you Lord Haw Haw? Okay. And William Joyce was like, no, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'll prove it. And he reaches into his pocket. Are you sure he wasn't what- like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> but he reaches into his pocket. Okay. Now, what he had there was a fake passport with a different name. Okay. What Jeffrey Perry thought he was doing was reaching for a gun. Understandable. Yeah. So Jeffrey Perry pulls out his own gun. Okay. And shoots William Joyce twice in the arse. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? How? <laughs> What? (laughs) I don't know exactly how, but it is very... The history is very clear. He was shot twice in the arse. So... (laughs) Had he, like, turned right round to get something out of his He might have done, or it might be that he basically shot him in the pelvis and it went through. Oh, right. Okay. Um, But either way, Joyce was down for the count. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Having been shot in the arse. Yeah. So he was then arrested by British intelligence officers and he was taken back to to Britain to stand trial for three counts of high treason. I'm so glad it was a Jewish person who shot him. I know, right? Isn't it great? That's so good. (laughs) And meanwhile, Lord Hawthorne was like, see, I told you. (laughs) So even though he was tried for three counts of high treason, he was actually acquitted of the first two. Oh. Because during the trial, it was revealed that his British passport was actually faked. He was never a British citizen. He was only ever an American citizen. Oh, okay. So he couldn't actually be be held responsible for high treason. Well, it was argued back and forth. Mm. And the point that basically stuck in the end was that the British passport that he had allowed him access to Germany before the war. And that meant he had enjoyed the benefits of being a British citizen and the protection of the king... And so could then be held accountable for his actions during wartime because he had basically got into a non-verbal contract with the king that he was, you know, acting as a British subject. 
that's mad. Yeah. I mean, really, I think it's one of these things that legally it's very shaky, but people really just wanted rid of him. Yeah. So it went through the Court of Appeal and the House of Lords and everyone basically just said, we're just going to go with the jury. Mm. The jury will decide. And they convicted him and he was sentenced to death. Okay. There were still some attempts to lessen the sentence. He still had allies who were trying to fight really aggressively for him. But Joyce eventually stopped fighting his case. And the suspicion, some historians have made this, and again, it could very well be true, but I'm not 100% certain, was he actually made a deal that he would not go public with the fact that he had worked for MI5 if his wife would be given clemency. Okay. Because she was also going to be arrested for high treason because she was part of this propaganda machine. She was Lady Hawhaw. Exactly. Whether this is true or not, it is interesting that Margaret Joyce was the only one of the 32 British renegades and broadcasters not to be tried with treason. That is interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's really like... It, it makes it seem like that might be a true story. It could. Although, I guess it would depend on how much, like, how active Margaret Joyce was. Yeah. So, like, if she took part in a few of his broadcasts, it's a kind of different kettle of fish to if she was actively doing stuff on her own. You know what I mean? I suppose so, yeah. It's like, you might have been coerced to do this by your husband because of husband could very wife well stuff. Be, yeah. Yeah. But, but at it, the same time, I like the spy story. More. I like the spy story as well. So on the 3rd of January, 1946, Joyce was taken from his cell to be executed. Um, He was actually, the executioner was Albert Pierpoint. Oh, yeah. Who is... uh, Your mum's obsessed with him. um, Yes, she is. Uh, But he's very famous. He was England's last hangman. Mm. Um, Pierpoint would also hang the guy who was hanged for treachery the next day. (laughs) Amazing. He was a busy man. He was a very busy man. Wasn't there something about the rope? Like the rope was made in West Sussex somewhere as well? I don't know. I didn't. I didn't read about that. No, that was um, that was something that your mum was oh, talking about. Right. Was like about Pierpoint's rope and where he got it from because oh. apparently there was like one family of rope makers who made the hangman's rope for years and years and years. Oh well, fair enough. I didn't. We'll have to ask her yeah, about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, William Joyce was unrepentant for his actions, and it's alleged that he said before he was executed, he said. In death as in life, I defy the Jews who caused this last war, and I defy the powers of darkness which they represent. I warn the British people against the crushing imperialism of the Soviet Union. May Britain be great once again, and in the hour of the greatest danger in the West, may the standard be raised from the dust, crowned with the words, You have conquered nevertheless. I am proud to die for my ideals, and I am sorry for the sons of Britain who have died without knowing why. Wow. Now, the words that he said uh, would be crowned on the standard, you have conquered nevertheless, were actually the words that are inscribed on the back of the Nazi medal of the Blood Order. (laughs) What? Yeah. What's the Blood Order? Uh, It was a high honour which was made by Hitler in memory of the attempted Nazi coup of 1923. Oh. But it's just one of those things. It's like that Mitchell and Webb look sketch about are we the baddies? Like... Our caps have skulls on them and we have the blood order. I also love, we really need to be worried about Soviet imperialism. And Britain will be great once more. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. I'm really concerned that the USSR might take over part of Eastern Europe. But also, can we stay in charge of India? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I can be viceroy. Yeah, there's still a chance. (laughs) No, William Joyce. Uh, So he was hanged, and when he was hanged, the pressure from the noose from Mm. when he fell Mm. apparently caused his head to split open along the line of the scar on his cheek. Oh, no, that's horrible. (laughs) It's gross, isn't it? That's so horrible. (laughs) I don't like that. Why have you been giving me horrible imagery today? (laughs) So... uh, William Joyce was taken and he was buried in an unmarked grave, which was the tradition for those executed for treason. But in 1976, following a campaign by his daughter, uh, his remains were actually dug up and he was interred in Galway in Ireland. He was actually given a Roman Catholic burial, which is curious because we don't know really what religion he was. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what? (laughs) Um... (laughs) Um... 
<laughs> what? What's wrong? <laughs> Why did they allow his daughter to have him dug up and reburied in Galway? Well, because he, he lived in Galway during his childhood, and I think it was considered that that was kind of his proper home. I mean, sure, but... Why were they like, ah, yes, this traitor will have a traitor's grave with no name. Oh, but your daughter really likes you. Okay, fine. (laughs) I don't know the details of it. (laughs) I just know that it happened. Um, I think it's one of those things where it's like, I guess it's almost like a a monument to what happened almost. Like, I, I I don't know. I mean, I hope his daughter's happy with the situation like i said she she clearly knows that her father was a dreadful human being mm. but she loved him he was her dad yeah. so yeah i guess i guess that's it and she I just guess. fought really vehemently and it was 1976 and everyone had given up caring about lord haw haw thank you for listening to that time when you can follow us on twitter at that time when for and you can email suggestions of episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby has used in the podcast. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and never listen to Nigel Farage. Bye! <laughs>